Open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy is the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, who actually was the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a number of years. And in this second letter that Paul actually wrote from prison as he awaited what really would be his execution. It was a little uncertain uh, probably at this time for him, but he has, the Lord has revealed to him that his days are coming to a close. So you can imagine that any letter that would be sent out would be full of really urgent truth, the important things. And you have that sense as you read this letter from Paul to Timothy as he exhorts him uh, both as follower of Jesus and specifically as pastor. Now, I'd like to read a portion uh, from 2 Timothy 3. I'd actually like to read verses 10 through 17, but the portion that we'll study in just a moment uh, is limited to those last two verses of this paragraph. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. You, that is Timothy, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I'd like to actually skip down to chapter 4, and I, I just want to read a little portion because it really does tie in in an interesting way to what we just read uh, about the power and value of God's word. But look at verse 13 of 2 Timothy 4. As, Timothy con as Paul concludes this letter to Timothy, he says, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Uh, the prison that Paul was in would have been very uncomfortably cold. So it, it's indicative of the fact that here's a man who <laughs> needs some warmth. But notice the next thing he says. Also the books and above all the parchments. Now as we look today at this uh, particular passage and, and it's the final part of this four part or five part series together, uh, the, the subtitle, if you will, is Learn and Studies. That's something we do together. But, but I actually want to begin with, with this little note that as Paul concludes this letter to Timothy, he not only says bring this cloak, but bring the books and the parchments. What, what would he have been talking about? Well, if you do a little research, you would find out that the word books probably refers to papyrus scrolls. Parchments, for sure, would re re refer to those uh, sheets of, 
of animal hides that were actually very valuable because of the process it took, expensive to produce, but they were the kinds of things that important documents were written on. And so not only were these things extremely expensive and valuable for the individuals who held them, but in this particular case, we have really good reason to think that he's talking about Old Testament scriptures and perhaps even some of the New Testament books that had been completed by the mid-60s. I think it tells us a lot about what Paul values in his dying days. Certainly, it's evident that his body is cold and and having a coat in a dark and dismal, uh, dank place like a, a dungeon makes really good sense. But parchments, books, what you see in front of you is, is actually a parchment uh, papyrus that is from the early, I think it's second century. It'll give you some visual idea of what that might have looked like. But I, I wanted to begin to ask the question, how valuable is the word of God to you? Clearly, it was valuable to Paul. You know, we take the word of God for granted in many ways, and the English-speaking people have not always had easy access to the word of God. One of my former teachers put together a little booklet recounting, the entitled it, A Pictorial History of the English Bible. And I remember reading that for the first time many, many years ago and just being stunned because I've grown up like you uh, having access to the scriptures. Do you know that in the 1300s, the word of God was so scarce in England in particular to English-speaking people that to rent a copy of the Bible for just one hour of study would have cost you a wagon load of hay. Now, I can't translate that into dollars for you right now, but just think about what was involved in growing hay, in harvesting it by hand. There weren't big machines. You couldn't go down to, you know, IFA and and get a wagon full of hay bales and take it, but the work that would have had to go into that, the personal investment, and that was just to have access to it, to rent it, if you will, for one hour. A couple of hundred years later, after God had moved through printers like Gutenberg and others like Tyndale, who actually was, you know, he was martyred, gave his life because he translated the word of God into the English language. He broke laws in his day, but said the ordinary people must have access to this word. And God used William Tyndale in a powerful way. But not long after those men invested so much of themselves into the English Bible, uh, you could actually purchase a copy of the scripture for yourself the equivalent of five days wages. And if you put that into present day terms, I just looked it up, the, the average salary uh, in Salt Lake City is about $50,000 a year, and that amounts to about $1,000 per week. So imagine that Bibles were for sale in our lobby today, and you said, I really want one, I just don't have $1,000 yet. Or you said, I have $1,000, but would I value the Bible enough to pay that much for it? It's staggering to us, isn't it? To think in terms of what English-speaking people, such as we all are, would have had to invest or endure just to read the Word of God. By the end of the 1500s, the publisher of the Geneva Bible, which actually preceded the King James Bible in 1611, 
had, had made copies available on an installment plan. <laughs> that sounds kind of odd to us, doesn't it? But we, we understand that. Some of you have financed cars and houses and other things that you valued, and you said, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to, like, save all of the money that I would need to purchase it outright, but maybe somebody will loan me money. And so over, you know, five years or 15 or 30 years, you invest in something that is important to you. Well, that is similar to what was taking place in those days. It brings me to a place, though, of asking, you know, some important questions even about our day. This is actually a screenshot of, of my Bible study software, and I know you won't be able to read it, but kind of in that center column uh, right here, uh, and it actually couldn't capture all of it because it runs even below that. Do you know, there, just in my Bible study software, I have access to 33 different English versions. Some older, some newer, some that would be even more a little bit of a paraphrase than a word-for-word translation, but 33 different uh, English, that's just English versions. You can go to websites like YouVersion. Uh, and, and many of you use their daily devotional readings and, and schedules. And this was staggering to me as I looked at the number of Bible versions they offer. Over 2,000, 2,062 to be specific, 2,062 Bible versions in 1,372 languages for free. I mean, you don't even have those pop-up ads that come up on version when you use it. And because we have such free access to it, I, I think sometimes we take the Bible for granted. And if we were really honest right now, many of us would have to say, you know, I sometimes go days without reading it. Or for some of you, you'd say, I've never actually read the Word of God on my own. I like hearing other people read it, or I come to church, and I, I'm very happy to open the Bible and look and follow along and, and, and read along or listen to other people read. But is it valuable to you? I want to know why it was so valuable to Paul. I want to understand uh, why it should be so valuable to me and to you. And then even a third question, why is learning together, that's the very narrow focus of this particular study this morning, so why, why would learning together in studies of a, a formal kind or even an informal kind, why would that be so important to us? Well, in the portion of Scripture that we read this morning, I think some of those answers begin to emerge. And one of those is found in verse 16. So look again at 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's the passage in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scriptures, you can look on the screen. But Paul says, again, just reviewing these words, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So here, here's the first thought for you. The, the Bible is valuable because of its origin. All Scripture, Paul is saying. And we know because of when he wrote and some of the other things that he set down specifically in additional New Testament letters, he would, have, he would have considered the 39 books of the Old Testament to be included in Scripture at this particular point. And even at this moment uh, in his life, uh, we are... We are certain, I mean, we are really uh, strong on, or I should say the evidence is really strong to give us this kind of certainty that the book of James would have been in circulation at that point. It's the earliest New Testament book that was written, we believe, in the mid-40s, so only about 12 years or so after Christ uh, was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. We know that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke were finished at this point. Mark was probably written and available at that time. 
or thereabouts. Uh, the Gospel of John, we think, would probably have been written a little bit after uh, Paul's time. Uh, the book of Acts had likely been completed, and we know that in part because remember how Acts ends, chapter 28. It, it just ends with Paul in prison. You don't even know the end of the story. Well, he's writing at that particular time. So it's very reasonable then that as Luke was compiling that account, um, that he completed the book of Acts at that point while Paul was in prison, even writing uh, 2 Timothy. There's certainly other Pauline letters that were completed in the 50s and the early 60s, and even Peter's letters may have been written by this particular time. So it wasn't a completed canon as we refer to at this point, but it was close. And Paul's point is that all of it, from the books of Moses right up to the letter that he was writing to Timothy, was breathed out by God. Now, what does that mean, breathed out by God? Or we sometimes use the word inspired. We, I want to be careful we don't think of the word inspired the way sometimes we would you know, attend a, a concert or look at a, a beautiful piece of art and say, that inspires me. Or your words inspired me. Or I want to inspire you. We're not talking about motivation primarily. We're actually talking about uh, breathing out literally. Um, it, it would almost be akin to aspiration of in a, in a biological or medical sense. It has to do with the breath of God uh, coming out of his being. You know, the first time that we encounter God breathing out something is in Genesis 1 and 2 as he creates human life. And Genesis 2 verse 7 tells us that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and mankind became living souls. So that breath had a powerful impact. It had a life-giving, soul-giving impact, if you will. Now the scriptures tell us, though, that all are breathed out by God. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is authoritative in our lives just because, you know, through the last couple of thousand years, church councils and church authorities met and decided this is going to be authoritative. But Paul is telling us something of a very different nature. We don't believe that the Bible has and carries authority into our lives because other church fathers, so to speak, you know, decided it has authority. It has authority because of its origin from God himself. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, we read a, a very important truth and description of the word of God. And Peter writes, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. That's why there's not a figure on earth now or ever that has been who carries the kind of authority to say that we now declare this to be authoritative. No, it's not about personal interpretation. It's not about human origin. Listen to what he says next. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that gives you another uh, aspect of what it means that God's word is inspired or breathed out and authoritative. They come from him. There are several uh, writers of 
Old and New Testament books that actually give us little clues as to what they experienced. And, and one of those is Solomon. Just listen to this. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher, and he's referring to himself by that term, the, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote those words of truth. And then he actually goes on to say, and there's only one shepherd. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about God being the source of this wisdom and this knowledge. Jeremiah recorded in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, and here it is, the quotation, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. You come to the New Testament, and Luke actually indicates that he did research, and, in, and he says in Luke 1, verse 1 of his gospel, that he compiled an account as a result of that research and talking to eyewitnesses. And then John, in the last book of the Bible, says in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And that's exactly what John did. And so these are some of the testimonies that help us to understand a little more fully and even personally what Peter means when he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men spoke from God as they were, or men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This Bible is authoritative. It's valuable because it originates in God. Here's a second thought for you. The Bible is valuable because of its benefit. Look at the text again and notice what Paul now says to his son in the faith, Timothy, to encourage him. Not only is all scripture breathed out by God, but it is all profitable. What does it mean, profit? To, to be profitable it means it's beneficial. Of what use is the word of God? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy, one of the first things that strikes you uh, about the word of God as you read Moses' writing, and he's telling Israel, reminding them of their past, saying that God humbled you, led you, even through your physical hunger to the point where you would call upon him. He fed you with manna, but even in that suffering of physical deprivation, part of that was designed to help you know, as it says here, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, there's value in this book, not simply because it originates in God and carries his authority, but because it is designed to nourish your soul and mine. So often we make the mistake of thinking that our souls will be satisfied in other things. There are millions of people who today, right now, are cooking out, grilling, they got a big party planned, and, and they're actually not just football fans, they're actually hungry for something that they hope will satisfy their souls. And my friend, if you think that watching a game for four hours tonight and eating really good food and hanging out with friends is actually gonna nourish your soul in an eternally substantial way, you are mistaken. Now, I'm gonna tell you, I. I plan to be with friends later today, plan to eat good food, plan to even watch a little bit of the game, but I hope that my heart is not inclined that way to think, yeah, this is where the good life is. No, God and his word gives you that eternally 
substantial nourishment that satisfies. How foolish we are, though, to think that a game on you know, a, a particular afternoon like today would satisfy. But how foolish are we to think that a, just a little bit better salary, a little bit better job, a little bit bigger or newer or nicer or refurbished house, if I could drive a little different car or have a little different relationship and, or maybe if I had a better marriage or if my kids were better behaved or if my parents were a little more reasonable. We, we look at all of those things as if somehow if we could tweak and adjust all of that, then life would be good. Then our hearts would be settled and our souls would feel satisfied. We've already read some scriptures in the course of this service that remind us that that kind of blessing ultimately is found in God himself and only in God. That's part of what Moses means when he says God wants you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Well, how can you even begin to know what your life really should look like, feel like, uh, seem like if you never open this book? The Bible is valuable, profitable, as Paul says. There are eternally significant benefits can we go back to Psalm 1 for a moment? If you'd like to turn there, or I'm sorry, Psalm 19. I said Psalm 1. Then Psalm 1 would be a great one because it actually says, blessed is the man uh, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, in his law he meditates day and night. But Psalm 19, Matt read this earlier, and I actually wanna just ask you to, to review a few of the things because as it described the law of the Lord, and I'm sorry I don't have this on, um, on, on PowerPoint, at least I don't think I do. But in Psalm 19, along with those six descriptions of, of what the Bible is or attributes of it, it also speaks of six particular blessings. And, and you may have begun to catch those things as Matt was reading through Psalm 19. And here they are. It restores the soul. That is, it, it's like taking your soul to a really good therapist or, or, or subjecting it to a really awesome spa treatment where you just need to be renewed. You need to be restored. You need to be strengthened. Well, the word of God has that capacity. And there's nothing else in the world that that like the word of God. You may have little pieces or, or snippets of that kind of restoration, but only the word of God can restore the soul. Number two, it makes wise the simple. It's full of wisdom. You want to know about life? You want to know about your purpose? The Word of God is where you're going to find that. Number three, it rejoices the heart. Some of you have been very discouraged in recent months. It's a hard season for you, and, and there are reasons for you to be discouraged, and, and maybe you battle depression, but the Word of God actually has the, the power to turn your heart out of that darkness into joy. Number four, it enlightens the eyes. Oh, doesn't this present day, this culture need illumination? We sometimes say, where is the light? I had a bizarre thing happen when I, when I woke up yesterday morning. I had, my, my phone was just a black screen, and I could see, you know, one of the message lights was blinking there in the top left corner, and so, you know, the typical thing is to, you know, just depress the button and then drag my finger across the screen and enter my little, uh, you know, my little code, and 
and it comes up and looks like your phone does. But yesterday, I would try all of that for the longest time, and I could feel it vibrating underneath. It's like it was, it, I, so I knew it was on. And I thought, well, maybe it's not fully charged. Maybe, maybe, well, I, I was not in a position at, at that point to do a little research or, you know, run by a Verizon store or whatnot. But I, I got home and, you know, thank the Lord for information that's easily accessible. So I Google my problem you know, my particular phone, and it is an older phone, and, and a scary thing came up initially, black screen of death, and I was like, oh, no, and my wife would be the first to tell you, I'm such a cheapskate that, you know, it's like going and buying a new phone, I just, I may actually go back to a flip phone this next go-around, but I'm still thinking, no, this thing is working, I can tell, so I, I keep reading, I find an article that actually says, sometimes it seems that this phone will, you know, do this little black screen thing when it's been updated. I'm like, well, that happens all the time, right? I mean, our, our phones, you know, middle of the night, sometimes turn themselves on and talk to us, and, you know, weird things go on like that, but I thought, well, maybe that's it. So I follow the instructions, and sure enough, I mean, in about 30 seconds, I'm, I'm it's not the black screen of death, it was just a black screen, and so I, I'm very thankful my phone is enlightened today. I, I, I can see the stuff I need to see. I can do some of the things that I need to do with this little piece of technology. And you know, the word of God enlightens your eyes so that you can see life the way you should. The fifth benefit or, or blessing of God's word is that it endures forever. You never have to worry about waking up one day and, and God has actually done an update and gone, you know all that stuff that you used to really like in Ephesians? It doesn't apply our work anymore. I mean, how terrifying would that be? No, this, this word is unchangeable. So that means it's, it's reliable, it's sure. You can build your life on it and you can hope for your eternal life because of it. And number six, it produces complete righteousness. Now the remaining verses in Psalm 19, verses 10 through 13, will extol, as one author says, the benefits of the work of the word. And if you continue reading, you'll find it actually, uh, it actually makes rich, it delights, it rewards, it convicts, and it protects. And, and as one commentator says of Psalm 19, it is a marvelous mark of God's loving grace that he has given us every truth, every principle, every standard, and every warning that we will ever need for living out our salvation according to his will. That's the profit of this word. Now let's go back to 2 Timothy 3 and notice the four particular things that Paul says about its profitability. And the first is this, it's profitable for teaching. And that doesn't mean like, hey, if, if you are a teacher and you need stuff to talk about, it's in the Bible. No, it has the idea of, of content that is taught. It's profitable for doctrine, some of your English versions uh, say, and that is a great translation. Scripture is the doctrinal foundation of life. This is the body of truth that God desires for us to know and believe and live out. You cannot understand life as you need to apart from this book. One author writes, God breathed scripture provides us the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as our heavenly father desires for us to live. The wisdom and guidance for fulfilling everything he commands us to believe, think, say, and do is found in his inerrant, authoritative, comprehensive, and completed word. It's profitable 
for teaching or for doctrine. So yeah, if you want to think of a little practical phrase, how would we express that? Well, it's as if God is saying, well, here is what you need to know and believe. Profitable for doctrine, for teaching. Number two, reproof. What is that? Well, the little phrase that I've put up the, on, the, on the screen to try to help you understand that would be, it's as if God says, well, here's where you are wrong or sinful. We need to know those things. It's never fun to be reproved, but when it comes from a person who loves you and desires the best for you, it, it at least makes it palatable. The Bible is able to clearly show us where we are wrong in our thinking, in our speaking, in our living, and it brings the weight of that truth not just to accuse us and condemn us, but actually to move us through this moment of reproof so that, here's the third benefit that Paul speaks of, we can be corrected. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just show up on the doorstep, as it were, and go, can I tell you all the ways that you are really wretched and sinful and that your life is broken? And then he turns around and walks away. That, that would not be gracious. But even when he reproves, it's a, a, with a view of correcting us. So that's God saying, well, here's what you must do. So yes, this is sinful thinking to be repented of. Yes, this is thinful, sinful speaking to be repented of. Yes, this is sinful motivation or whatever it might be, but, but God carries us from that place through his word to the place where we can see clearly here's what you ought to do. Let me give you one example from 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. The apostle John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, you'd be content to live in that delusion that you're not as bad as, you know, the next person or maybe as somebody else thinks you are, but when God comes and confronts you with clarity and authority and reveals it to you, what are you supposed to do? Well, he tells you in verse 9, your part is to confess it. And then sweetly he comes in and says, and I'm the one who's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. You see, his reproof leads us to correction, and that correction is not the end game either. Actually, look at what Paul says. The fourth benefit is training in righteousness. Now, this is a word that appears in Ephesians 6.4. If you want to turn over there really quickly with me, I think you'll be intrigued by the, the context uh, that Paul uses this term in that letter. Ephesians is just a few pages in front of First and Second Timothy. But in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, or we could say training, and instruction of the Lord. And so what he, what he is talking about with respect to fathers is that their responsibility is to be involved in a child's life in such a way where there's active training. Ongoing training saying, not this, but this. Not those words, but these words. Not those actions, but these actions. And now let's go do it. Here is how you are supposed to live. Well, in the word of God is designed by him to train us specifically in righteousness. Go back to 2 Timothy 3 and look at verse 16. Training in righteousness simply has to do with doing those things that God says are right. Righteousness is his standard, and it is a standard he has set according to his character and his law. 
And his expectation is that we would live according to it. Now, it's important for us to remember once again that our obedience is not our way of salvation, right? We obey because we have been saved. We obey because we have been forgiven for our sins. We obey because God has declared us to be perfectly righteous and set his love on us and adopted us and made us his forever children. So obedience flows out of all of those benefits of this grand salvation. And the word of God is profitable for our training in righteousness so that we not only know what we ought to do, but then we get good at doing it. We mature. Verse 17, very quickly, the Bible is valuable because of its purpose. Look at what Paul says. Scripture is breathed out by God, verse 16, It's profitable in these ways. And then verse 17, that, or you can even understand that, so that God breathed it out, made it authoritative, made it profitable or beneficial for us so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Uh, Is Paul leaving out ladies here? No, remember, he's writing a letter that's specific to Timothy as pastor of Ephesus. And that man of God does have a a little more formal reference to to those who are ministers of the gospel or preachers, pastors, we might say. But the truth is relevant to every single one of us. It's true to young, it's true to old. It's true for new believers, and it's true for the oldest and most mature believer in our congregation. So while that phrase, man of God, is a a title used for God's prophets and ministers, the truth and, and purpose of God in the word still stands for all of us, that we may be people, look at the two words here, complete and equipped. Complete has the idea of you actually are proficient to the place where, say, you're qualified, I spoke earlier of how thankful we are for our musicians, and you know, long ago I had music lessons, started out on the piano, switched to trumpet, then switched to euphonium, and, uh, and even picked up a few guitar lessons along the way, but I'm not proficient with guitar or piano where I could ever be a part of the worship team. I would be a distraction. You would not feel led in worship. You would feel hindered. Uh, and frustrated as you tried to sing praise to God because it would be wrong note after wrong note or just be silence and that'd be really awkward. And you know, the Lord doesn't want you to live your life as an ill-equipped, ill-prepared follower. He wants you to be fully qualified and proficient in this Christian life. And the second word he used here is equipped. And that means that God personally uh, assumes the responsibility of furnishing you complete with everything that's necessary for this life of righteousness, for the particular work of ministry. But it is tied to this word. It's tied to how you and I personally dig into this, learn it, believe it, uh, begin to practice it. Uh, but as we'll see in just a moment, it, th- there's also an opportunity for us to do this together. So let's, let's think about how we would put this into practice. And I'm gonna make three more personal points of application for you because the word of God is valuable because of its origin, right? It, it comes from God. 
It's not just from the mind of people uh, to others like us. This comes from the mind and heart of God to you and me. Um, So it's, it's valuable because of its origin. It's valuable because of its benefit. And we just looked at these things together. And so how do we approach it? Here would be a really simple thing, but read it plainly. You say, what do you mean read the Bible plainly? You just, as you open it, look for the normal, natural, plain sense of the text. Through the years, through the generations, there have always been those who, who've tried to either find it or even teach others that there are like secret and, and hidden messages in the Bible. About 20 years ago, I think it was, this, this Bible code thing came out where they were running, you know, all kind of algorithms and like every 17th Hebrew word in this obscure passage in Isaiah, if you put it together, it says, Saddam Hussein. Wow! You mean there's Bible code secret stuff in the words of the text? No, there's not. And I'm just, I'm going to tell you, some of you are like, I never heard of Bible codes. Good. Praise God. That's an answer to many of our prayers. But it will come back around again. Just like even in Paul's day, there were the Gnostics. That was one of the groups that liked to tell people about secret knowledge. So here's a, so when we say read the Bible plainly, just recognize that God in his love and kindness has not only given us his word, but he's shown his love and kindness that you actually have access to it in English or Spanish or German, or French, or almost 1,200 different languages, probably even more, just thinking of you version. And part of why he gives us the word is to make his truth plain. It would be helpful to take a Hebrew class or a Greek class at some point, but praise God, any one of us can open the word and understand it. Read it plainly. So here's another little clue. Anytime somebody says to you something like this, well, most of the professing believers in the world don't see this. Or most preachers will never tell you. Mm, you ought, I mean, you're like radar ought to go crazy at that moment. Like, oh, really? Because I can, I can assure you that what they're about to tell you is false. Now, I'd hear them out. It, it's going to be wrong in one of two ways. Either there actually are a whole lot of people who've known that, believed it, and, and preached it, taught it, written about it, published it, and they're just ignorant of church history, or they're making stuff up that is not in the Bible. Number two, read the Bible contextually. We don't just jerk verses out of uh, the paragraphs or the pages and chapters and and books that they're a part of. Um, I shared one in our prayer time this morning. We were actually looking more closely at Isaiah 55. I used that in, in part of my pastoral prayer at the outset. That is a wonderful chapter that actually begins with God's call to needy spiritual people to come to him. And he says, I want you to buy this wine and milk of, of a spiritual nature that I'm offering to you. Buy it without money. There's, there's no price attached to it. And then he goes through, though, and, and says to people just like you and me, call upon the Lord while he is near. That is, repent of your sins. And then he says in verse 8, for my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, in its context, do you know what he's talking about? He's saying my ways are higher than yours because my ways are holy and righteous and your ways are sinful. 
My thoughts are so much higher than yours because they are perfect and holy and righteous in every way, and your, way, your thoughts are sinful. So when God is talking about his ways and thoughts being higher than ours, he's not actually talking about inscrutability. That's a big word that we sometimes use for like those mysteries of life. Like we just cannot believe the kinds of things that God does. But how often in, in sharing testimonies of, of our love for the Lord, we, we take that verse quite a bit out of context and say, you know, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And then we tell about how God did something really incredible that we never expected. That would be an illustration of how a verse is taken out of context. What I would hope that all of us would recognize is that when God says, your ways are not my ways, my ways are higher than your ways, that we would feel the weight of conviction to go, you know what, my ways are worldly. My ways are very often carnal and sinful and God is calling me to repent of those ways and turn to him in faith and have him remake me and renew me so that eventually my ways are his ways and my thoughts are his thoughts. That's, that's what I am encouraging you to do to say, to read stuff in context. Number three, read the Bible personally. This is where Psalm 1 is such a beautiful psalm where uh, the psalmist says, blessed is the one, um, the man who walks, not in these particular ways. And then he comes to verse two. I'll just, for the sake of time, read this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There's the benefit of the word again. That's why you and I need to read it personally. But then finally, coming full circle, read the Bible together. There's a beautiful illustration of this in the book of Acts where Paul and other apostles have been going out to, to evangelize and to plant churches and they come to a, uh, a town called Berea. And there are actually already some believers there. And even when the Apostle Paul stands up to preach and give them the word of God, the, the, the description of, the, the, of these people, Jews in particular, is that they were noble. That's the first thing that Luke describes them with. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness. So they're, they're eager to hear Paul preach and teach and eager to read Uh, what the apostles were writing in those days. But then listen to this. Examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. So they're actually comparing what the apostle Paul himself and others were preaching and teaching them, comparing them to the scriptures just to make sure that it's accurate and right. Do you know there's protection, not just blessing, but there's protection when we get together And we open God's word and earnestly dig in and say, okay, Lord, what is your word? What does it mean for us? How should we understand this and then apply it? Similar to what I was sharing earlier about, you know, the secret knowledge and Gnostics and Bible codes and all that. One of my teachers used to tell us often, and I think in every class I had from him, novelty in theology is never good. And again, you can be sure that if, if, if you suddenly feel like you're the first one to ever see something in a particular text, you're probably off. And the benefit of, of studying God's word together is that we can guard one another against running off into dangerous teaching, heresy, or, or practices ultimately that are unbiblical. We need each other. And so here you have an example of these Jews in Berea who eagerly receive God's word, yet at the same time they keep their Bibles open. And so when we say, together, 
we learn in studies, we're not talking about an academic process where it's just like, okay, check off the next box and you know, we've knocked out Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is next, so we're gonna take the course on Numbers. No, it's because we want to encounter the living God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to be fed in our souls, to be built up in the holy faith, to be those people who, because we understand that the word of God is profitable for our doctrine, that it will reprove us and correct us and lead us to that place where we are trained in righteousness that we may look around at at a body of believers who by grace have been saved but nonetheless have been brought to that place as Paul describes here in verse 17 where we may say we are competent and equipped and not that we would ever be proud of ourselves at that moment but that we could say thank you Lord we are growing in the way you want us to very practically you say well where where are the opportunities for me to be in, involved in this particular way well in the ordinary week and Matt's actually going to talk about some of this in just a moment there really are multiple opportunities there's a Tuesday morning ladies bible study that meets every other week right now where you can learn together in studies there are men's meetups 3 days a week now there's there's a group that's forming up down in Saratoga Springs uh, i think that's mondays um And then there's a Tuesday group up at High Point Coffee. And then there's a Friday morning group that meets right here at church. Those are opportunities where we open the word together, we read it, we share it, we pray through it. There are the monthly men's breakfasts where we open the word together. There are the Thursday night prayer gatherings that we're holding right now that include a little bit of instruction, but also a time for us to just pray with our Bibles open. And then, of course, there's Sunday morning. This is why we take this word seriously. This is why that I feel it's such a grand privilege and thank you for this, but even as a pastor who is tasked with preparing these sermons, the privilege of just being in God's word and studying the course of the week is a privilege, but it's something I take very seriously because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Danny Brooks thinks about anything. You, don't, you better not come here you know, because you think that you know, I got some kind of thing going here. I'm like a table waiter at the end of the day. And my job in the course of the week is to be in the kitchen with the great master chef who says, I have living words that will nourish the souls of my people who are coming Sunday. And then God willing, we who minister the word come out and say, you're not gonna believe this dish that God has for you. Isn't God good? And aren't you thankful he has not left us to ourselves to figure it out? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we ask forgiveness for not valuing the word as we ought. Thank you. You had no obligation. You had no obligation to reveal yourself to us, but you did, and you do. So even as we seek to value this word, and I know some here are very young in the faith and feel wholly inadequate to open it and read it, would you, would you give them the great joy of opening the word and sensing the nearness of your spirit as he illuminates their hearts and minds? Give them faith to take even that first step just to begin to read it personally. For others, Lord, who've read but if they were honest, would, would say they're a little bored with it or it's confusing to them, it's just been hard. Would you renew them in that desire? 
And would you illuminate their hearts and minds and give them that satisfying nourishment in their heart so that they would say, I understand and believe. I don't live by physical bread alone. I live on the words that proceed out of the mouth of God. And would you continue to bless those gatherings in the course of the week, the ladies' Bible study and the men's meetups and our Thursday night prayer gathering and then certainly our Sunday worship. Oh, Lord God, let your word live in our hearts that we may know you, the living God. I'm thankful for this congregation that week by week shows up hungry and eager to know your word. Would you continue to guard and keep that strong appetite and give those of us who preach and teach skill and wisdom that we may rightly divide this word of God and rightly and accurately preach it and teach it and grow this church, Lord God, that we may be the people you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.